Good morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Just want to say welcome to everybody. Maybe this is your first week here at Schindler Drive. If it is, we certainly want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're with us today. And uh, whether you're a regular attender, you've been attending just recently, or this is your first day, this is a good day for all of us to be here today because we're beginning a new series today. So we're going to begin a new series through the book or the letter of Ephesians. It's called Unsearchable Riches. And I can't think of a better place for you to be on Sunday mornings for the next several Sunday mornings uh, than right here uh, in service as we walk through a, a relatively small book, but a massively important book, massively encouraging book for us as believers. And I think this is a book that a lot of us need in our life right now. I really do. As I've talked to a lot of people, even recently, maybe it's tied in with just the crazy kind of the last three or four years, but just a lot of spiritually tired people, a lot of uh, people who feel anxious or are struggling with loneliness, people struggling with spiritual apathy or spiritual drowsiness, just people feeling spiritually checked out, worn out, stressed out. And we all have different ways that we kind of cope with those feelings, don't we? Uh, different ways that we deal with the pressures of life. Maybe some of us get, get stressed and we shop. I don't know. Maybe some of you get stressed out and you jump into the social media world and just kind of veg out and just scroll through a bunch of videos. You want to know the way that I cope? Oreos. That's right, Oreos. But not just, not just plain Oreos, all right? So I was uh, introduced to... Uh, a little trick when you eat Oreos is you take some peanut butter and you put the peanut butter on the Oreo and you dip the Oreo in the milk and it's just magical. It kind of changed my life with the way that I, my relationship with the Oreos, right? And I, uh, somebody told me that a long time ago. So th- there was a time in my, you know, life I was stressed out, you know, it's been, it's been a while back when it was like every night I was going to the pantry and like throwing down a sleeve of like Oreos there in my chair peanut butter and, and to the point where my wife when I was like you've got to listen you we've got to we got to fix this you've got to come back you you, you got to maybe you have a problem here with Oreos right you got to pull yourself together uh, but most of us have something that we reach for in the world like to just deal and to cope with uh, stress and to cope with stuff that we're struggling with maybe for you it's food maybe it's spending money maybe it's uh, staring at a screen. Hey, maybe it's some of us trying to self-medicate ourselves with things way far more destructive and dangerous than some of those things. But I'm telling you, as we dive into this letter, as we dive into this letter over the next several weeks, as we, our hearts just are submerged in the, the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus, as we take a look at these gospel truths that are true about us in Christ Jesus, you are going to experience, as you lean in with a teachable heart, you're going to experience a spiritual nourishment for your soul that's way better than Oreos. That's way better than anything else that you may grab at to cope with the stresses of life with. And if you're here and your heart's been felt a little cold lately, your heart's felt a little hardened lately, stale, spiritually you felt drowsy, uh, you lean in over the next several Sundays as we're together. I'm telling you, this is a book that can help jumpstart your affections for God. It can help stir your affections for the Lord once again. So it's really a book that's going to be encouraging for all of us as we're in this over the next several weeks. And to kick this off this morning, we're just going to look at the introduction of this letter. All right, so just the first two verses, but we're really just going to look at the first verse this morning. So stand with your Bibles open as we read 
God's Word. By the way, as you stand with your Bibles open, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, we want you to know that we don't want you to leave without you seeing us because we would like to give a gift to you. We'd like to give you your own copy of God's Word that you can study, that you can bring uh, even into study and, and use on Sunday mornings and in your own personal life. Let's read verse 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, this is your word. We've read your word. Now I pray that you would take your word and you'd use it to change us, to sanctify us, to shape us more into the image of your Son. And we ask these things in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. So this letter, many of you know this, but just a little bit of review. This letter was written by a guy named Paul uh, to a church of real believers who lived in a real city, an ancient city in the first century called Ephesus. It's one of 13 letters that are in the New Testament that he wrote to different churches throughout his ministry. Part of the Pauline epistles is what we call those. And uh, epistles, not a, you know, don't overthink that word. It's a, it just simply means letter. And so Paul wrote a lot of letters to churches in the first century. Ephesians is one of them. And uh, what we just read there in those first two verses is actually a pretty typical introduction, not for Paul's letters, but really for any letter that was written in the first century. You'd often uh, introduce yourself as the author of the letter, but you'd also make it known as to who you were writing the letter to. So it feels like a pretty simple introduction. Maybe you're wondering, why, really, we are going to spend the entire morning camped out in verse 1. Is this going to be like a five-minute message, right? There's actually a lot here. And there's two specifically foundational truths that we're going to draw out of verse 1 this morning that I think will really help prepare us as we move into this study over the next several weeks to the letter of Ephesians. All right, and the first foundational truth is this, all right? This letter contains the very words of God. This letter contains the very words of God. Now, that may feel like too simple of a point to make this morning, right? So, but some of you may not be locked into that truth this morning. Some of you here, I think all of us here, probably need to be reminded of this foundational truth this morning. The truth that when we open God's Word, when we come to a book like this within God's Word, it is just that. It is His Word. And some of you may have some sincere questions this morning. You may be wondering, how could a letter written around 2,000 years ago have anything to do with my life today in 2023? How is this letter, how is it relevant to my life how does it kind of hold any authority and power in my life today? How can I trust this book? How can I trust this letter? Those are really good questions that I'm glad you asked this morning. And there's actually a really good answer to it right here in this first verse. It's found in the introduction right there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So the reason, an answer I'm going to give you is the reason we can trust this letter is because of who wrote it. Right? What Paul's doing here is he's presenting himself as the author of the letter, and he's also presenting himself as an apostle, which is very, very, very significant. There are a lot of different ways that, at least I can think of, that you know, Paul could have introduced himself, different ways he could have introduced himself to this church that existed in the first century in the ancient city of Ephesus, especially when you do a little homework. Right? You find out how this church came into existence, and you can think of some different ways that he might have could have introduced himself. All right, so this is a good place for some background, all right? As we think about how this church even came into existence that he's writing back to, this church in Ephesus. We actually find out a lot about that in Acts chapter 19, 
right? It packs it all in there. It's, a, it's an incredible story, and, and it is about Paul going into the city of Ephesus. And just if you just stop and just think about Paul for a little bit, who's on that mission trip that we're going to talk about in just a second, who's writing this letter, Paul, that's a, if you just back up further in Acts, Acts chapter 9, that's an amazing story. That's a whole message in and of itself. As you have Paul, the greatest missionary to ever live, who was previously a persecutor of the church. And in Acts chapter 9, it radically gets saved. And his life is transformed. And that's a reminder that I don't care who you are, I don't care how messy your life feels. Is, listen, God can change your life. Amen. And how you start it isn't how you have to finish. In Christ, you see Paul. I mean, imagine how awkward that was sometimes. Hey, what did you do before you were a pastor, Paul? Well, I killed Christians. So no matter how messy your life feels, you know, God's grace is stronger and mightier. And we see that in the story of the Apostle Paul. It goes from persecutor of the church to a, one of the, the greatest missionary, I think, that ever lived. And we see in Acts, you can kind of track with Acts and see how Paul goes on these missionary journeys. And he goes on the first missionary journey, and you see him preaching the gospel. You see him advancing the gospel. You see him doing ministry. You see him making disciples. You see him planting churches. And through his ministry, the gospel spreads like wildfire across the known world at that time. And then it records his second missionary journey. And then you get into his third missionary journey in Acts. It records that. And the first stop that he makes on his third missionary journey after he leaves Antioch is the city of Ephesus. And it's where he camps out longer. Than, he stays there and he does ministry longer than he does in any other town that he does ministry in throughout his missionary journeys. They're in the city of Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 19, be a great uh, chapter for you to read, just uh, kind of in concert with this study over the next few weeks. In Acts chapter 19, it tells us about his time in Ephesus. Ephesus was in a very important city. It was, it was located in modern-day Turkey. It was one of those influential cities in the world at that time. It was a commercial hub in the Roman Empire. It was particularly famous for its pagan worship and its pagan temples where they'd worship uh, these false gods, and it was actually houses of prostitution, so a lot of immorality, a dark place there. It was famous for its worship, uh, specifically of the goddess Diana, or called Artemis, and there was a big ornate temple there where people would travel from all around to come and worship Diana, this false goddess in, and that was a temple, and that goddess uh, worship of Diana was a very important part of that city because it funded the economy there. And so Paul comes into this town with the gospel, and he just begins to saturate the place with the gospel. He just begins with his team to preach the gospel, and he begins to boldly confront with the gospel the immorality in that city, and the idolatry in that city, and the dark magic in that city. And there's really some some really cool stories through uh, throughout. And one of the ones that stands out in Ephesus is uh, you'll remember in our study of Acts a couple of years ago. Remember the seven sons of Sceva. All right, the seven sons of Sceva, they were like this group of like little Ghostbuster kind of group of exorcists that go around and, and said that they could cast demons out of people. And they see Paul and his team come in and they're doing ministry in the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus is casting demons out of people. And they start watching Paul and they're like, man, that's pretty cool, right? And they try to have no interest in making Jesus the Lord and Savior of their life, but they do have interest in borrow, trying to borrow Jesus' name as some kind of magic spell they can use to impress people and cast demons out. And they try to do that and and listen what happens to him. Acts chapter 19, verse 16, it says that the demon-possessed man, so they try, to, they try to use the name of Jesus and borrow it. They're going to cast this demon out of this guy. And it says the demon-possessed man, quote, leaped on the seven sons of Sceva, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, so you go into a fight fully clothed, and you leave naked as a jaybird. You lost that fight decisively. 
No excuses. You just go home and maybe not come out for a little bit. But what happened in that story is the eyes of the city turned away from the weakness of all of that dark magic and turns to the power of Jesus they're seeing demonstrated in and through the life and the ministry of Paul and revival breaks out. And the church begins to grow and all kinds of people start getting saved. And what happens as a result is people start turning away from worshiping that, that false god, Diana. And what happens is, is that economy that relied on the industry, the worship of Diana, it begins to fold and it begins to impact that city. And this holy commotion begins to break out in the city, which is just, just pause there. Wouldn't it be pretty cool if a holy commotion broke out on the west side of Jacksonville as a result of churches like ours advancing the gospel boldly? So this holy commotion breaks out and this riot breaks out and they drag Paul into this arena and they flip the town upside down for the sake of the gospel. Make a long story short, Paul gets out and he gets out of that riot and they don't hurt him and he moves on to his next stop. But what he leaves behind in Ephesus is this healthy church. This church that he helped plant full of leaders that he raised up you know like timothy he leaves timothy there to be the pastor of this church a church that continues to advance the gospel and becomes one of the most influential gospel advancing churches in the first century and here paul is years later writing back to this church in ephesus that he planted he went on and did other ministry and planted other churches and now he's writing back to this church in ephesus with some important things to tell them that he really wants them to listen to and to embrace and consider and to take he wants he wants them to take this letter seriously and if and if i'm paul i can think of some things to say some ways to introduce myself that i could think would maybe get their attention like hey y'all listen up don't you remember that i'm the one who founded that church Hey, y'all listen up to me. I got some important things to say. Don't you remember that I'm the one, that, I'm the one who trained y'all up to do ministry? But he doesn't do that. You, maybe if you're Paul, you could think, hey, maybe he should talk about how much he sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. Maybe that would get their attention. Because you know where Paul's writing this letter from? Not from a coffee shop. He's writing it from prison. He's writing it along with some other letters to some other churches in prison in Rome awaiting his execution for the proclamation of the gospel. So I'm thinking if I'm Paul, maybe I can say, hey, you guys need to listen up because I got some skin in the game. Nobody has sacrificed more than me for the sake of the gospel, but he doesn't begin that way. To encourage them and to convince them that this is an authoritative letter that they need to read, that they need to believe, that they need to embrace with their lives. This is all he says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that simple statement right there carries this extreme amount of weight on how authoritative this letter is and how we need to view it and how we need to orient our lives around it, how we need to receive it. And it's all wrapped up in that word apostle. The word apostle. We say, well, what is that? Well, after Jesus died and he rose from the dead, there was some men who were personally enlisted by him to do a specific kind of type of ministry. All right, so Jesus enlisted... A lot, most of them uh, were of the original 12 disciples except for Paul. All right? Paul's the only apostle to ever be enlisted as a, an apostle after the ascension of Jesus into heaven. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9 that uh, we just talked about a few moments ago. Paul's salvation story where the resurrected Christ 
confronts him on the road to Damascus, and his life has changed. Now, what did apostles do? So Paul's an apostle. What did apostles do? They did a lot of things. They preached the gospel. They taught the church the Bible. They taught the church about prayer. They worked miracles. So there was something unique about that season in the life of the church, where through these apostles, they were working miracles. You can read about that even in Acts chapter 19. And it was for the purpose of authenticating God using that powerful supernatural display that he was demonstrating his power through those miracles to authenticate the message that they were carrying in that dark world of magic and supernatural things. And so they were performing miracles. They built up leaders in the church. But here's the one thing that really set them apart. God chose these apostles to write down a large portion of his word that we now call the New Testament. James Boyce, a commentator, said it this way. An apostle was one appointed by the Lord to be a recipient and authenticator of the New Testament revelation. And this is important. This is really important for us to consider this morning because that means that the letter that Paul writes right here that we're going to spend the next several weeks studying is not to be regarded as any other book. Like outside of God's word, any other book written by a mere man or written by a mere woman, it is a revelation of God of himself to us. It's the words of God. This is authored by God. It's inspired by God, which means it's authoritative. You've got to feel that weight. You know what that means? It means that if these are the words of God, the very words of God, these should carry some authority in our life, and we should understand that if that is true, it means, to, it means that this is true. To ignore this word is to ignore God. What it means is to take this lightly is to take God lightly. What it means is to dismiss dismiss this word and just kind of shrug it off on Sunday mornings as we're in it is to shrug off God himself. What it means is as we understand and we take in and we hear God's word over the next several weeks and we hear these words out of Ephesians and these these truths that are there, to not apply those in our lives and to not obey them and to disobey the scriptures is to disobey God himself. You say, well, I kind of hear what you... I just don't, I don't know about that. Well, let me illustrate it this way. Like, have any of you ever had to tell someone in your house to go in there and clean that room up? Has anybody ever had to say anything like that? Has anybody over the last few weeks had to tell someone in your house, maybe a child, I don't know, maybe you had to tell your husband or your spouse, I don't know, go clean that room up. I don't know. But certainly, if you have kids, there have been times where you have had to say, hey... Get in there and clean that room up. Sometimes, like, it's so out of sorts that you maybe had to get to, like, an extreme level. We've been there before. Like, oh, my, go, what happened in your room? What blew up in your room? Go into your room and do not come out of that room till it's clean. Do not emerge from that room until it's clean. And maybe you close the door and you say, I'm going to come back in an hour and it better be clean. The words that I'm telling you, do what I'm telling you to do, clean your room. And you come back in an hour and you open the door and nothing's been done. And it's... They've done zero. And you can tell that all they've been doing is just sitting there. They've sat there and played PlayStation for the last hour. What are you going to do as a parent? You're going to say something along the lines of, what are you doing? Did you, do you not remember what I said? Do you, do you not have love and respect for me as your mother? And what if they looked at you and said, no, mom, it's not that. I love you. And I care for you deeply. I just don't care about what you say. Now, I don't even want to imagine what would have happened in my home if I would have said those actual words to my mother. But you'd say, no, it doesn't work like that. 
As a parent, the way you view and treat and respond to what I say reflects on what you really think about me. It reflects on how you view me and how you love me and how you care about me. And the same is true when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. How we view His... These are His words. How we view His Word. How we treat His Word. How we respond to His Word. How we handle His Word reflects a lot on what we think about Him. And the re- you say, why are we walking through all of this? I just want us to be aware like never before as we study the book of Ephesians that we're hearing from God Himself over these next several weeks speaking into our lives. These are the words of God. His revelation of His heart communicated to us. It's a letter that can be trusted. It's a living word. It's a perfect word. It's inerrant. It's inspired. It is His word delivered through His, dis- His apostle. And it's a timeless, everlasting word, applicable and relevant, and to have authority in the life of any believer between the time that it is written and the time that Jesus Christ returns. So, if we love Him, and if we say we love Him, may that be proven in the way we come here on Sunday mornings over the next several weeks, hungry to feast on this word, hungry to receive it, believing that this is the authoritative perfect, inerrant word of God. So this letter contains the very words of God. Second thing is this that we're going to draw out of this introduction this morning. And it's this. This letter contains words of soul-stirring encouragement and challenging instruction. This letter contains words of soul-stirring encouragement and challenging instruction. All right? So the letter of Ephesians, just want to give you a heads up about the, kind of an overview of the entire book. It is divided into two big parts. All right? The first part is chapters 1 through 3. The second part are chapters 4 through 6. And the first, you actually get a preview of both parts in that first verse. I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you that. All right, so the first half of this letter, first three chapters, it's going to be packed with what we're going to call grace-saturated encouragement. Do you need some grace-saturated encouragement? You're going to get that in these first three chapters of this book. And you actually get a preview of that and what that whole first half, verses, or chapters 1 through 3, is all about in verse 1. You say, well, where is that? It's in that phrase as he's greeting the recipients of this letter to the what? Saints. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a saint? He's calling them saints. You say, well, I think a saint, from what I understand, maybe you're thinking, is, isn't a saint the people who like live such a godly life on earth and are so religiously devout and do so many good things in the name of Christianity that once they die, then there's a group of people that get together and kind of give them a title of saint. Isn't that what that is about? That's not what Paul's talking about. You say, well, maybe he's talking about like saint in the sense of like people who are really, really kind and really, really charitable, right? And somebody says to somebody like that, man, she's a saint. He's a saint. That's not what Paul's talking about. All right, so what is Paul talking about when he calls the Ephesian Christians saints? All right, well, make this note. He's calling people saints who weren't dead and aren't perfect. All right, make that note. You'll see that in the second part of this letter. They're not perfect. There's going to be a lot of instruction for them that they're going to need to follow and align their lives with. But in the first half right here, what he's going to present is he's presenting the truth that in Christ, we all wear this eternal title of saint. All right, 42 times throughout the New Testament, that's how the Apostle Paul describes Christians. You know what that means this morning? It means I'm looking at a bunch of saints. In Christ, you are a saint. 
That is an encouraging truth that the first three chapters of this book, it's going to drill down into, all right? It's going to show us that. But I want us to go ahead and get excited about this. I want us to go ahead and experience some of this grace-saturated encouragement. If even from right here in this first line, in this little phrase, to the saints, right? you and I in Christ are saints, all right? So I want us to be encouraged by that this morning. So I just want us to speak that over each other and over our own hearts, all right? So I want you to repeat after me. In Christ, in Christ I am a saint. Right, that was about 75% of us, all right? If you're in Christ this morning, everybody participate. Repeat after me. In Christ? In Christ. Better, I am, I am a saint. How about that? How about that? <laughs> in fact, I want you to look at the person next to you. And what I want you to do, and this is going to be difficult for some of you because you're like, I came to that person this morning and I know them very, very well. But I want you to do this. If... If they're a Christian, if they're in, I want you to turn to that person next to you, and I want you to look him in the eyes, and I want you to say, "In Christ, you are a saint." Go. All right, good job. Let's look at me. That's what the Bible says is true about you, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ. This morning, that's what the Apostle Paul says about you. You're a saint. But listen to this. We're going to take it a little deeper right here, all right? So the Greek word, the actual Greek word for saint is hagios, all right? Hagios. And there's, it, it's a word that's just packed with, with meaning, and it kind of takes several English words to really capture what it's about. Saint is one of those words that we use to capture what it's all about. But there's some other words, and you see them pop up throughout the New Testament. Same word. goes back to the same Greek word. Here's some of them, all right? And these are words that are true about you. You're not just a saint. You know what it also says? In God's word, that you are in Christ, holy, perfect, without blemish, pure, blameless, clean. Now, some of us are thinking, man, it was hard for me a second ago for it to just kind of sink in that I'm a saint. Now, you're saying I'm holy and blameless. and I'm just not talking about me doubting about the people around me. I know my own self. You're telling me I'm holy and perfect, without blemish, pure, blameless, clean. I'm a saint. How? How is that true? This is foundational. For you to understand, as a Christian, Paul is not referring here to how, the, how you're living your life. Paul's referring to your standing before Christ. Paul here's not speaking about what I do. He's delivering foundational truth about who I am in Christ. Amen. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And let me read it to you. You don't have to look it up if you don't want to. And Colossians is a great letter for you to read along with our study here in Ephesians because this is, it's one of the prison epistles. So we believe he wrote it around the same time that he wrote Ephesians in that same prison cell. And you're going to see when you read Colossians, I think it's around 20 to 25% of the content that you see in Ephesians shows up again in Colossians because a lot of the concepts, a lot of the truth inspired by the Holy Spirit that's on the heart of Paul and in his mind shows up and spills out over into the Colossian church as well that he's writing them. So it's a great it's a great book to read along with a study of Ephesians, and in it we get a better understanding and a deeper understanding of what Paul's talking about when he talks about us being a saint, about us being pure and blameless before God. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, doing evil deeds, so he's writing to Christians there, and the Colossian Christians in the church of Colossae, and he's saying, hey, He's reminding them of who they were. Hey, let me remind you of who you used to be. You used to be alienated from God. You used to not have a relationship with God. You used to be cut off from God in your sin. 
right? No relationship. And not only that, he's saying you used to be hostile in your mind towards God, an enemy of God, engaged in evil deeds. That's how God viewed you before you met Christ. That right there describes our position before God before we meet Jesus, before we receive the gospel. But he goes on to say in the rest of that verse, but he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you now, how? Holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. In other words, here's who you used to be, but now here's who you are in Christ. How did that happen? Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. He died in our place on the cross. He took care of all of our sins, past, present, and future on that cross. You say, He took care of all my sins, all my future sins? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, he better I hope he yeah you better hope he did that because when he died on the cross all your sins were in the future so on the cross he took all of our sins on himself past present and future then he rose from the dead proven he's the son of God and when we trust in him as Lord and Savior here's what happens that moment that you receive the gospel which moment that you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior you're born again and in that moment you enter into the forever family of God and in Christ you are permanently positionally declared perfect holy without blemish without spot saints in the kingdom of God forever and ever and in the first three chapters of Ephesians Paul's just going to keep drilling down into that truth dialing into that encouraged reality and your heart's going to receive grace grace saturated encouragement grace fueled encouragement that I've been made right with God because of Jesus and here's what that means here's what that means it means this as we think about being saints as we think about our position that's changed before God holy blameless right it means this that in Christ after you've been in heaven 25,000 years, I just want you to just, it's a long way away, but you get in a time machine in your mind and you go 25,000 years into the future, into heaven. It means in that moment there, 25,000 years into your future, the reality in your life in that moment is going to be this. You're not going to be any more holy before God in that moment than you are right now. You know Why? Because now, in Christ, something has happened. In Christ, God now views you through the precious, spotless blood of Jesus. You're as holy in the sight of God as Jesus himself. That's how God sees you. He sees you as if you lived that perfect, sinless life. In Christ, he sees you that way. You say, that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. That kind of makes me feel, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't deserve that. That's exactly right. That's why it's called grace. It's a position before God that's been gifted to us in Christ. By grace, that's a position that we've been given. That's what the first three chapters are going to drill down into. That now in Christ, we are saints. But in this introduction, it also gives us a preview of the second half of the book. All right, The last three chapters. At the beginning of chapter 4, in verse 1, you see this shift happen. All right, you see the word, therefore... And what Paul's going to do in the second half of the book, he's going to say, in light of what we looked at throughout those first three chapters, that you're saints, that positionally you're pure and righteous and blameless before God, here's how that's supposed to impact your life. 
Here how, here's how that's supposed to impact your life. Right? And so where do we see that in the introduction? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. All right, that word faithful there, faithful can mean a lot of different things, but right here it means this, to continue in the faith. That's what that word there means. Meaning this, that there were real people that Paul's writing to, real people who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who were positionally right with God, and now by faith, they're allowing Christ to live in and through them. And what Paul's going to spend the second half of the book doing, he's going to continue to challenge them to continue in the faith. He's going to challenge us in the final three chapters of this book to be faithful to bring our daily lives up to the level of our position as saints. Now, this is where it may give you some clarity, all right? We don't arrive at the level of being positionally and practically holy in this lifetime. We will forever be works of progress until we meet Jesus. You with me? One day we will be a saint in position and a saint in practice. When we get to heaven. But between here and there, our position before God is that of a saint. And now what we're doing is we are experiencing the sanctification process of what is true about us in position coming out practically in our lives. And it's a progression of a, of a spiritual development that happens throughout the course of our lives. And what Paul's going to show us is it, it, it's got to be a progression if you're a Christ follower. That's proof that you're a Christ follower. Not perfection, but progression. And so what this book is going to do is it's going to show us what our position is before Christ in the first three chapters, and it's going to show us these glorious truths that are ours, these, in the, these heavenly glorious truths, these riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And then what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, hey, those heavenly truths that are true about you in Christ Jesus and your position before him, they've got to be pulled down that in the, out of the heavenlies and into your home. Out of the heavenlies and into the reality of your marriage relationship. Worked out into your, it's gonna, those truths about who you are should be changing the way you relate with people. The way you view current events in the world. The way you deal with struggle in life. The way you deal with, you know, being abandoned. The way you deal with people rejecting you. The way you walk through challenging circumstances. All the different areas of our life are supposed to be impacted by who we now are in Christ. And what we're going to see is this. This is going to be a really important truth that I pray your heart gets a hold of, that the Holy Spirit helps your heart get a hold of through this study. Is what we're going to see is when we're not living the way that's outlined for us as to how we should be living our life, and it's going to cover all kinds of different areas of our life in the second half. When we're not doing that, it's always because we're not believing what's true about us that's laid out in the first three chapters. It's always tied to that. What we're going to learn in this study is that what we believe determines how we behave. There's an inside-out transformation that the Lord wants to do in your life. And it begins with you believing right. And then with your behavior reflecting the right belief that's in your heart. And that's what this book is going to do. And I'm telling you, it's going to be encouraging. We're going to begin in part one next week. We're going to dig into these truths that are true about us in Christ Jesus. The riches of Christ that are ours. And we're going to dig into these gospel truths and they're going to be truths to celebrate. And I'm telling you, your spirit's going to feel lifted. Don't miss it. That's going to be next week. But the, what we're going to end with this morning is we're going, to, we're going to remember what made all those promises and the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus and the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. We're going to remember what made all that possible. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus. 
A price was paid so that we can experience the unending blessings and the unsearchable riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. Does anybody like free stuff? Seven of you like free stuff? I don't believe that. We all like free stuff, don't we? My kids, especially when they were a little younger, just they get enamored. They just love free stuff. You walk into a place, and if something says free, it just they love free stuff. I remember going into a hotel when we were when they were a little younger, and and they walked into the little area where you get the you know the little breakfast the next morning, and they came back and said, "This place gives you free breakfast." This place gives you free breakfast, and they have free cereal, and they've got, a, they've got a waffle maker. This place will give you free waffles in the morning. Can you believe that? It's like a Holiday Inn Express. They're acting like it's Rich Carlton. And I'm thinking, well, maybe come back next week without staying here and see how free that is. You know what I'm saying? That's not free. I paid for that. That's included. That's not free. I remember uh, my son Benson when he flew for the first time uh, on an airplane and it was just me and him traveling somewhere and he just thought it was amazing that the free, they give you free food on this plane. They give you free cookies and free Cokes. Are you kidding me? Free? I was like, that's not free. I paid for that. It's included. There's a big difference. Listen, these blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. We're going to spend the next three chapters. It's going to take us several weeks to get through this. It's very, very important as we prepare to dig into these blessings, as we prepare to dig into these riches that are unsearchable, that yes, they freely come to us and it's an unending amount of blessings that come to us, but they're not really free. They're paid for. They come to us freely, but they're paid for. Not by you, not by me. They were paid for by Jesus, whose body was broken and his blood was spilled so that we can be blessed by God. So I want us to remember that going into this study. It's going to be an encouraging study. But it'll be extra encouraging to you if you go into it remembering that deeply. That these aren't really free. They come freely to us, but a great price was paid so that we could be recipients of this marvelous, glorious grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.